One of the most important topics I've been working on is Sanskrit non-translatables. In fact, I have a book on that. And this has to do with Sanskrit words that have no English equivalent. They should not be translated. They should be brought into the English language to enrich the English language in their Sanskrit form. And we should teach people what they mean, because then even if you are an English speaking person, you enrich your knowledge. Each of these words is sort of like an ecosystem of ideas and background and practices. So with me today is Dr. Bhaswati Bhattacharya, who you already know. So Bhaswati, I'm going to ask you to start with, uh, because of everybody is worrying about the COVID, uh, the word krimi as microbes, micro, mi uh, microbiome and parasites, and the word bhuta. Now we, we think of bhuta as sort of ghost, you know, but you've explained to me that bhuta is any invisible being that could be partly living, not living, a bit ambiguous on the edge, whatever. So tell us how these two words relate to uh, this coronavirus. So I kept a couple of notes here because I'm still a Sanskrit student. I love the way that the Sanskrit base words really tell a bigger story. And I think that's missing in a one word English translation. So with Bhuta, for example, Bhavati iti Bhutaha means that there is something that existed in the past and the kind of imprint of that is left over it's not perceivable so there's this idea that there's something that is sukshma which means very minute that exists not be perceived by its physical structure by man but still can affect men and that is a bhuta now that can both mean ghost it can also mean virus. In the Ayurvedic textbooks, I'm not talking about like puja textbooks about getting rid of spirits and things. I'm talking about Ayurveda. When they were talking about Bhuta, they were actually talking about the um, things that we cannot see that affect our health and our bodies that cause disease, right? So, I mean, I think the, the association is pretty obvious. A Bhuta can reflect or refer to a virus. And when you see it in the chapter called Janapada Dwamsa, which is the epidemics, the contagious epidemics, and they refer to Bhuta, they're not referring to ghosts, they're referring to viruses. That wrong translation that has been done in many of these old British textbooks from the 50s or the 40s, or even back in the 1800s, we have to be aware that they didn't know what viruses were. The brilliant field of virology really only evolved in the last, let's say, 50 or 80 years, and um, not even that long. And so when they were translating it, you know, to be nice to them, they didn't know what viruses were really in the 1800s. But somehow in Sanskrit, in Ayurveda, they knew. So that's Bhuta. Karimi refers to worms and parasites, but it also refers to those organisms that sit and feed off of us and feed us, which are what we call symbiotes. And we actually, um, in our body, have something called the gut microbiome, which is what the creamy are. They are things that live inside of us. They also live on our skin and in our nose and in our, you know, our oral cavity. And they, these creamies, don't refer to parasites and worms. They refer to our gut microbiome. And isn't that so amazing 
that the Madhav Nidan has a chapter on it and that Charaka and Shushruta talked about this thousands of years ago. And yet when they are introducing these words in modern day translations, they have mistranslated completely and limited the sophistication of understanding of Ayurveda through the systematic mistranslations. So creamy can be uh, good guys who are in the microbiome because they're helping digest and keep us healthy. But creamy can also be a virus that is harming us. It could be either good creamy, bad creamy. That's exactly right. And there are actually 20 kinds of creamy. Some of them are those parasitic worms, the round worms and the ones that we think about causing tropical diseases. But many of them are actually needed in our body because as you know, not only digestion, but our entire immune system is dependent on the microbiome. And we see that people that have a messed up microbiome have messed up immunity. And people that constantly clean out their guts and have you know overuse of antibiotics or from birth, they have not had any, uh, like they've been kept in a clean, you know, hyper clean place. They don't grow good immunity. You know, it's very interesting how our people are alienated from our own culture. We have so many doctors. Uh, uh, recently, a nephew of mine, brilliant, brilliant guy started a business where he is marketing microbiome kind of products. And I told him that in your website, start with creamy, the Ayurvedic origin of the whole theory of microbiome, because microbiome, the gut and all that is so in, in Western medicine, they've discovered it because so many people have translated right or wrong. They've gone into Ayurveda. Some of them done better job than others. And so finally, this idea that, you know, a lot of healing, a lot of disease, all of that starts in the gut. Uh, it, it, it has part on, uh, but and Ayurveda needs to get the credit for that. And Ayurvedic doctors used to stay quiet because many of them don't have English as their first language. So they don't want to argue in a language that they're not masters of, right? They don't know 1500 words of English. But there's also, there's also a power imbalance. There's also, there's also a, it's not only lack of knowledge, there's also lack of uh, confidence, self-esteem and being able to argue their point. So therefore a feeling like they are not in power. Would you agree? That's exactly right. They can't articulate it. So they can't say, no, creamy means this in the English translation. You have to have a pretty expanded vocabulary to find the right verbs and the right nuanced words. And if you don't, you just use a clumsy word the way a person does when they're a beginner at a language. And I think some of these translators um, were not experts at Sanskrit. And so they were just using any English word. But I think there was also something more sinister going on about a hundred years ago where they purposely didn't want the sophistication and the elegance, as you say, of the Ayurvedic texts and what they were implying to be known. And they weren't as advanced in medicine. One of the reasons I can translate these terms is because my modern medical knowledge and my basic science knowledge in chemistry and pharmacology allow me to think about concepts in an expanded way. So this is why I think you are the right uh, collaborator on this issue of, uh, you know, Sanskrit non-translatables for Ayurveda because you are an MD, you have the Western credentials, pharmacology, all of that. And you're also an Ayurveda uh, PhD and practitioner. So you can see both sides of it. And I'm very appreciative of the time that you're giving me. Uh, I want to talk about Agni. Now, Agni is another word that, you know, people think it's fire and all that. So tell us what is Agni uh, in Ayurveda? So Agni actually is translated as fire, but it actually refers to that which engulfs whatever it comes into contact with as it moves forward. That is the actual definition of Agni. 
And so when we think about it, it's true. When fire moves forward, it engulfs and transforms and, you know, eats up that thing, which it, um, uh, which it came into contact with. So even though we can say that Agni is an example of that, it is not true that Agni actually means fire. Right. Agni has many forms. And the, the, yes, the concept that you are calling Agni, the concept of fire, actually has many, many words in the Sanskrit language. We call it Agni in the Ayurvedic world because it is that which engulfs that which it comes into contact with. And the main place that we talk about Agni is um, the digestive fire, I'll just say. So the digestive fire, we have the Jatar Agni, which is the main fire in the gut. We have the Bhuta Agni, which is the different elements that come into our body and how those are transformed and made into our body. We have Dhatu Agni, which is the seven layers of what we call in English tissues, or the seven layers of formation of our physical form. And the fire it takes to transform one to the other through seven layers. And we have um, a, uh, well, I talked about the main Agni as well, but we have um, the doshas, which we haven't gotten into, so I'm reluctant, we'll, we'll get into them, but basically doshas are vata, pitta, kapha, and those get transformed as well. So there's the Agni for those. What we're not talking about is this, you know, this fire that we think about in a campfire that's eating up hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen and creating this orange flame. What we have instead is a chemical series of engulfing, which take whatever it comes into contact with and transforms it. So that is what we mean actually when we talk about the process. But when it's translated as fire, people imagine like a little campfire going on in their belly, which is just not the case. And that's because they don't understand the word Agni. So next we could perhaps go to Ama and Grahi. Yes. You think that those, are, those are nice terms? So tell us well, about this. Well, I, I, I don't think they're nice terms. I think that they're the logical next to because okay. Agni's purpose is to digest, is to engulf and digest. And so when you have the food come in, which is called Ahara, and you transform it and you transform it completely, and then you grab what's useful from it and you send it into the body, that's called grahi. If you grab it, but you don't actually digest it and you can't take it into the body and it just sits there, that's called undigested material, that's ama. And ama happens to be everything that you can hang on to but cannot transform properly. That inability to transform it either means your agni, your ability to engulf is not good enough, or it means that it doesn't recognize something and have that power of you know the connection that needs to be made that chemical connection so the elegance of understanding something without having the biochemical language is demonstrated in the physiology of ayurveda they knew exactly how to prognose and prognosticate disease but they didn't have the biochemical terms they couldn't say there's pepsin and hydrochloric acid and bile and pancreatic, you know, lipase or amylase. But they knew that there was a process of grabbing and bringing into the body that was going on. And they called that grahi. If they didn't do it properly, there's another word of grahi, sangrahi, which is constipation. It means you hang on to it so much that you can't let it go when you're supposed to, when it gets, you know, all the way down. 
So what are things like enzymes? All the things that are used that modern medicine says are used for digestion. What are they? Are they Agni? Are they Grahi? What are they? Uh, it depends on their function. So some enzymes that engulf something and completely transform it. Yes, we could say that the the term Agni is referring to those enzymes. If we talk about Grahi, we mean that it's holding on to it. Usually enzymes don't hold on to something forever. You know, they will hang on to it. They'll either chelate it or they'll hold on to it, but then they'll release it. The whole purpose of an enzyme is to transform. It usually can't hold on to something for too, too, too long. Most enzymes. So did they have a word for enzyme? No, but they had words for transformation. And they really talked about the function much more than they talked about um, uh, the, you know, the static kind of two-dimensional something going on. The, the object. It seems that a lot of these terms are about a process rather than about a thing. That's correct. So uh, is Agni more a process than a thing? Because the English word fire is a thing, but Agni is more a process. You're right. Um, there are noun forms and there are verb forms in Sanskrit, as you know, better than I do. And most of Ayurveda is about the function and the structures that are required to support the function. We are here for a purpose. We're here to make things happen and then go. And so those functions need to happen. And so the, um, the sharira, which is here to slowly move towards death, but to support our soul as we move in that process, um, is a function. It's not a static being. So, you know, last time or um, before we talked about the balance that happens and how once we're in balance, we're in balance. Well, balance is not a static thing. It's a constant dynamic thing. When you get to the tip of the point of the mountain, you can't stay there very easily. You, you know, you're always trying to re-achieve that balance. So Agni is a constant um, function that will go out unless you keep feeding it. There's a constant movement of time and space that is required in order to keep it going. And it engulfs, it's engulfing all the time. Now, one of the very profound things that uh, you've talked about, we've talked about is Bhasma. Yes. What is Bhasma? Because that's, that's highly misunderstood. Absolutely. And you did research on Bhasma. My PhD work was in the department of Rasa Shastra and Bhaisita Kalpana at BHU. So um, at one time, few decades ago, it was considered to be one of the world's leading places to learn about and make Bhasmas because BHU happens to be a campus that goes from mining and metallurgy and chemistry and physics and everything that could possibly be relevant to the study of metals. And it was all in one place. And so my mentor, Dr. Jha, who I've mentioned before, um, was making Bhasmas, but he would laugh and say, people think that we just make ashes. I said, what? He says, yeah, because in the Puja literature, you know, the vibhuti is another word for uh, uh, bhasma. And they talk about the guys on the Ganga who, you know, are up in the Himalayas or down in Haridwar who are putting bhasma all over their body. So that's there. You talked about the iron pillar and how there was a layer of, you know, bhasma um, underneath the, uh, the iron unchangeable or rust-free core. So this idea of it being a ash or it being a kind of a kshara, like a burned ash, 
um, is partly true in that there's a process of fire, but the basma that we talk about in Ayurveda as a medicine is actually a process of taking either a metal or a mineral and subjecting it to a series of heat and submerging liquid cycles. So heat, submerge, heat, submerge. And they do the seven times. They move on to the next liquid, heat, submerge, heat, submerge. And as they do this, what they do is they transform the chemical nature basically through acid, base, acid, base, and then heat, acid, heat, acid, heat. And then they take it when it's broken and they put it into a fire that is very, very hot. We're talking 600, 800 degrees Celsius, where all of the plant material, basically most of it burns away. Some of it makes alkene bonds um, or alkyne bonds, but most of it, if it's you know free carbon, floats away. And that process, then when it comes out of the oven, has turned these large, huge rocks um, which have been submerged in acid and, and alkaline to make them smaller, so they're not raw ore anymore. It makes them into milliparticles, microparticles, and then after several cycles, nanoparticles. So when you take a thing like mica, um, which is a you know a kind of rock, and you take it through a hundred cycles of that, they make these nanoparticles that are extremely good for cancer. They're very good for the lung. We give them as rejuvenatives for people post-cancer. And if they're given correctly, if they're not given correctly or they're not made correctly, they're poison. So modern medicine has got it right that these things are poison. But what they don't have right, what they're completely ignorant about, is the potential to take them and to uh, make them so useful to the human body, so transformed, that that process of basma making renders them medicinal to the human body. And there's an entire replicable science. Professor Jha, Professor Gopi Krishna, Professor Acharya, the people that are teaching me um, for the last few years, they are masters of remaking the basmas and doing something that modern medicine doesn't do, directly correlating the batch that they made with patients who take those medicines and um, transform out of disease. I have seen it. So if people say, well, that's a pretty tall claim to make, Bhaswati, you are a doctor. I say, yeah. And as a doctor, I have the license to say that if I saw something, I must speak about it in the name of um, the truth, but in also in the name of a science that is a frontier science. And Bhasmas, if you take away the idea of them just being ashes, like useless, what do you think of when you think of ash? Something that's gone and done with, something that's basically waste. But what we're talking about is a systematic, methodical science that creates medicines. It's amazing. I am completely and totally in love with Patsmas. Wonderful, wonderful. But you know, if, as you said, if not made properly, you can also get heavy metal poisoning. That's Some right. Have, yeah. And that's the bad name that uh, because uh, uh, you know, there is that kind of uh, sloppy quality control issue uh, in some of the people who are selling medicines. And uh, I know somebody who got uh, lead poisoning uh, and all kind of heavy metal poisoning, uh, taking some Ayurvedic medicines because they were not from the right sources. Actually, there's a couple of four, uh, things going on with plasmas. One is Shetrikarana, where you have to prepare the environment. If you don't prepare the body, what you'll have is 
that lead going in and sitting in little crevices where it shouldn't be sitting. And then those are hard to get out and that's what causes poisoning. You have to rev up the function of the filtering systems of the liver and the kidney. You have to make sure that the body's agni, once again, the word agni, comes high enough that they can actually grahi, pull and grab that basma and take it to the right places. You have to give it with the right anupan, which means the carrier, so that it'll go to the right place. If you give it with honey, it goes to the lung. If you give it with ghee, it goes to the liver. If you give it with hot water, it goes to the gut. If you give it with milk, it goes to the testicles or to the ovary or to the um, uterus. If you give it with a special kind of ghee, it'll go to the brain. If you don't know what to use and you use it in the wrong way, that's dangerous. In addition, think of chemotherapy. Would anyone just go and take chemotherapy because they heard that it works? You have to have the right protocol. Basmas are as elegant or more than chemotherapy is. And when people use it improperly, you know, one of the things about basmas is there's only about 20,000 people who know exactly how to use them. If you go to one of them, you will heal. If you go to people who don't know, why are you blaming me if you, you know, overdose on something that you took in the wrong <laughs> way? If sure. you take water and you keep drinking water and you force yourself to drink, let's say six, seven, um, liters of water in a day, you know what's going to happen? You're going to get sick. Table salt, you keep eating table salt and you keep forcing yourself. There were these games that teenagers were playing where they were truth and dare people and they would make them eat lots of salt. They end up in the hospital. They end up getting their stomach pumped because it's toxic. And so sure. everything can be a poison. So if you're going to blame it on a basma, why not blame it on your own arrogance that you think that you have the right to give yourself chemotherapy without supervision? It's a very powerful thing that has to be managed and uh, done, used properly. That's exactly right. And so, and so, but I will say that people like Robert Saper and the New York Department of Health and the others who went out and put these big notices up, why didn't they bow humbly and say, wow, maybe there's some science we could learn here. Why did they vilify heavy metals before thinking that, hey, there are some people in India who know how to make basmas. Why don't we go and learn about them? You know, Saper came many times to India with his team. There were doctors of Ayurveda that were working with him. Why didn't she notify him that, sir, you know, before you use these basmas, maybe you should go learn from people who use them. I would never give someone a antiarrhythmic drug for their heart to stop the arrhythmias if I wasn't a doctor, because they're dangerous. They can mess up the rhythms of your heart. If they're messed up, they can cancel out the messing up and make them normal or make them you know, back to rhythm. But why would you give someone a, uh, an antiarrhythmic drug without knowing how to use it? Why do people think that Ayurvedic drugs are all like you know, having a piece of fruit? Basmas are not Basmas are powerful medicines. They are not to be played with. Yeah. Very good. So what about rasa? So rasa shastra uh, is the science and rasayana is the science of rejuvenation. So what does this word rasa have in common? Rasa actually has to do with flow. It doesn't, and, and of course what flows is liquid. So there are many meanings of rasa. Rasa can mean the plasma of the body. Rasa can mean the plasma that the sperm swim in, which is called semen. Rasa can mean one of the um, tastes, well, the idea of taste, right? Which, as you know, you can't taste if your tongue is dry. If you grab your tongue and you dry it and you try to put some salt or sugar on it, you can't taste it, even though your taste buds are there. You need to have fluid 
and flowing, usually it's saliva, on your tongue in order to taste something. So that idea of flowing and moving things along is rasa. And so if we talk about flow and we understand what flow is, it's a very different thing than just taste. People say, oh, rasa means taste. It's an incomplete definition and the mistranslation of rasa will not allow you to understand the nuance of what flow creates, which is life. We talk about, in fact, water. One of the reasons the Ganga is so powerful is because it's constantly flowing. That flow is crucial for life. So how about a word like Shodhana, which is translated as cleansing? What, what do you think of that? What, how would you explain that? Word? Have you had Panchakarma before? Many times. I've had about 15 times in about 12 different locations, both in the US and in India. I've had it in the Maharishi place. I've had it in, I've had it in the uh, Deepak Chopra place. I've had it in uh, places in Florida, here, all kinds of places. And I've also had it in India, in Kerala, in Delhi, in Chennai. So I, I have, I'm a, I need to come to your place next. Okay. I, I promise I'll do that. So Shodhana, as you have experienced, is a process of cleansing your body. But actually Shodhana has to do with the word Shuddha. And Shuddha is not cleansing or purifying. Shodhana also is used in Bhasma making, and it doesn't mean cleansing or purifying. Shuddha has to do with something that was incomplete becoming complete and becoming complete in the harmony of its own bhava, which means its own natural existence. If something becomes complete, but it's not in its own natural wellness, like let's say you get a really bad panchakarma and they fill you up with oil. So you're full, you're, you're shuddha, you're full, but you're not shuddha, you're not whole, you're not complete. You're not back to your harmony. So shodhana, people say, well, we just, you know, clean it. To be clean is to be in 100% of your existence state that you should be in. And imagine that that is the ultimate harmony. That's what sukha is. Your ka, your, your space of emptiness is filled with that harmony, that su. So that is what shodhana is about. In, Ayurv in Ayurvedic Rasa Shastra, Shodhana is not cleansing the metal. It's taking out the properties that are harmful to you and make prevent you from becoming complete when you take those metals. And instead changing the properties such that when you take that metal into your being, it helps you to become complete and whole in the sense of perfect your harmony. Do you see how they do mean the words that they are used for, but they don't quite? It's a, it's a reductionism. Because the Sanskrit word has a spectrum of meanings, it's different contexts. It's a, and you take one context and you collapse the whole spectrum into one. And that's injustice. That is what my problem is. Often, often the word does have that one meaning also, but it has a whole lot of other meanings. And so to, to reduce it to that one meaning and apply it universally is wrong because you have to apply it in its context. It is also, in addition to being wrong, which I agree with, it's also handicapping the practitioner. Because if I learn that shodhana only means cleansing, and I haven't thought of the expanded idea of what it is, not only have I lost some of my repertoire, but you have made me only think about these possibilities when I think about medicines for you. And so my repertoire as a doctor is severely limited. And that is one of the big problems that 
I am a, uh, you know, it's a problem for me because English is one of my main languages. When I read books of Sanskrit, of Ayurveda, um, it, uh, it doesn't do any justice for me. The statement um, that is encouraging, actually, is that um, there were a few books that were published in the 80s, 90s by really good authors, really well-meaning authors, but they were all in English, in Ayurveda. And people bought them. And so I came to India and I said, hey, why don't you use this book? It's such a popular book in America for Ayurveda. Everyone reads it, all the students read it. And I said, because it's incomplete. If we use this book, ha, ha, it's so hard to piece out which parts are correct and which parts are wrong. I said, well, what's wrong? Are you telling me that the books I read are wrong? They said, it's incomplete. The book in English that's pure English is incomplete and it is co-opting Sanskrit without giving the credit for Sanskrit. It's not giving the reference from which it was taken, whether it was Bhagavata or Charaka or Sushrut, which also give context because the three were in different time periods and in different parts of India, different climates of India and different access to different medicines and plants. And the people that read only in English uh, it's almost like they don't need to learn the Sanskrit. They don't need to learn the source. So it's easier to steal from it. There are people that write books for, you know, for Ayurveda for dumb people. And they say, oh, here, just read the book and you'll understand Ayurveda. You can't understand Ayurveda by just reading the English because you're giving them not just a dummied down version, but almost a malified version because you prevent them from thinking about the mind-body connection, which is something we haven't even talked about yet. So how about David Frawley? I don't use David Frawley's books because David doesn't practice medicine. Ayurveda is a science. I have very few isms. You know, I like to believe I'm not racist, classist, whatever it is. But one of the biases that I absolutely have is that if you're going to do Ayurveda as your profession, you must be a clinician. Because Ayurveda is a living, contemporary, dynamic science in which everything is contextualized by the patient. And so while I admire the fact that he's learned Sanskrit as well as he has, there are mistakes in many of his books that uh, the my gurus have told me about. And they say he's a well-meaning boy. But at the same time, I say, if he was a clinician, I think I could be much more, um, uh, you know, I could use his books better. So it's not against him as a person. I don't say it's against him as a person. It's against those um, actions in which people choose to be in Ayurveda, but not be clinicians. So uh, you can tell as a clinician, as a practitioner, you can tell the difference, the shortcomings of a book, which is by a theoretician, but without the actual empirical evidence of, uh, uh, you know, really like in artificial intelligence, machine learning is based on experience. The more the, the more examples the machine has, the more smart, the smarter it gets. So human doctor is also like that. A, knowledge, a knowledgeable person has a whole lot of patients, a lot of cl clinical uh, experience and, and uh, tailoring it, personalizing it. And that is the essence of Ayurveda. So what you're saying is it's not just a matter of knowing Sanskrit, knowing the language and translating something without that empirical evidence of your own. That's, That's right. And you know, David Frawley as a person is actually a nice person. So I'm going to talk about an area that is um, depersonified. It's classical Ayurveda. There's a whole group of people that are translating texts as classical students. 
I have a bunch of things that I will criticize openly. One is they are taking texts and trying to translate the words pretty much out of context. Um, they're called manuscriptologists because they take different versions of texts and they try to compare them using their oh so superior Sanskrit language skills, but they don't have the clinical skills. So what they're translating, they're not getting any of the Tantra Yukti. The Tantra Yukti is specifically made so that Sanskrit scholars would never be able to decipher the real meaning until they understood the clinical implication of something. So there are a lot of metaphors and there are a lot of um, euphemisms that's a really good word, actually. There are a lot of euphemisms used throughout the Ayurvedic uh, books. That's one. Second is, what are they doing with those texts when we can't even have access to them in India? I have a huge, huge um, chip on my shoulder about repatriating the things that were stolen from India in the last 200, 300 years. And when I hear about universities in Europe that carry those, those beautiful palm leaf uh, manuscripts and don't give anyone access to them because they say they have to preserve them because they're antiques. They're our antiques. I'm not talking about the diamond in that crown that also belongs to us, but I'm talking about those words on the page that you can't even translate because you A, don't understand Sanskrit, B, you're not a clinician, and C, you won't give anyone access to them. So the entire group of people in classical Ayurveda, sometimes they, they contact me and they ask me about contextual things having to do with mercury because you know they've been invited to a mercury meeting. They don't understand mercury. They don't understand rasa, why mercury is called rasa or parada. And the context of these terms is so important and only to be understood if you're a clinician. Because if I tell you about the four ways in which the gut throws out waste and you're not a clinician you're just not going to understand why i gave you a laxative versus why i gave you um you know a psyllium husk versus why i gave you a mango versus why i gave you salt water you're not going to understand that because you don't understand the clinical parts of it if you do then these words like rechana or vata anulomana will will come alive for you and you won't translate them using you know, the, the dictionary. You'll translate them using your knowledge of living clinical experience. The word dosha, we, I mean, you cannot have a conversation on the Sanskrit non-translatable without talking about dosha because it's such a, such a common uh, part of it. So tell me, uh, tell me how you feel about that and it's translated as humors and all kinds of things. Yeah, when you said that to me before, I just remind, remember that that's what I had read in uh, one of the basic textbooks and I was just so disappointed. There's a whole history that one day we'll talk about of why Ayurveda is the science that was co-opted by the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Chinese, and various medical systems that are considered to have come before Ayurveda. But the word dosha does not mean fault. It does not mean uh, humor. A dosha is something which is either creating a fault in others, dushyate, or it is something which is um, in and of itself faulty. So some people will say that that means it's a um, sin or a fault, like the regional languages translate dosh, like in Bengali, dosh means it's your fault. But what 
Ayurveda is talking about is that when we come from matter and energy, you know, going back and forth, when we come from energy into matter and we precipitate into a slow moving substantive physical form, we always bring with us a certain amount of imperfection because energy is more perfect than matter. The avyak, the unmanifest, which is in pure energy form, is more perfect than that which is manifest. And so doshas refer to the principle of movement that's happening, the principle of transformation, and the principle of holding things together or being lubricated, but in a slightly imperfect way because they are in physical form. And to understand the nuance of doshas and the whole world being dosha and relationships of dosha, the land is dosha. Everything we taste is dosha. Every animal moves with doshas. Our whole body is filled with movement, transformation, and lubrication. These are English words. What about the PVK, the, the, that aspect of the dosha, which is what the specific doshas are? Tell us about that as non-translatables. So if we talk about dosha being that which creates imperfection, then the purpose of the doshas, as you're referring to the word, is about the functions within the human system, the mind and the body, the soul and the senses. And so the soul is a necessary part. It's the driver of the car. The gasoline the and the, the fire, well, the atma is like the driver, but it's also, yes, yes, you're right. I shouldn't say soul. That's a very limited concept. So we can actually say the mahad. We can say the paraatma. Okay. We can say... Okay. Purusha Prakriti, right? It just depends which philosophy of ancient India you want to uh, use. But the idea is that there is a beingness that is not in physical form that takes physical form. And that philosophy that we use requires a series of instruments that interface with the non-physical and the physical. And so that is the concept of doshas. That um that one or that thing that creates that imperfection as it comes from the immaterial into the material so that idea that we're so the manifestation matter, matter and energy if you think physics right so manifestation right. matter and energy all of these um symbols of physics moving transforming constantly in movement the idea of the electron constantly flowing around Doshas seem to capture that idea of the physical being and the non-physical energetic being at the same time. And I think that's intolerable to the ideas that positive ha positives, positivists have. Okay, so let's talk about your uh, critique of positivism in the context of Ayurveda. So I think positivists have an agenda that they only want to look at what is provable by their own theorems. So let's say there was a theorem that came up by Einstein or by Bose or by anyone that was, even Descartes, who was talking about the manifest beingness requiring the mind and some kind of knowledge or knowingness that was beyond the mind. How dare those people even put together mathematical formulas that talk about that infinity 
being summated and then reduced down into something that is like matter that transforms between matter and energy. So I think positivists want to see only those things that have been utilized greatly by modern medicine that they call proven evidence and anything outside of that doesn't work for them, even if it fills the criteria. There are many, many kinds of medicine that fill their criteria, check up all their boxes, and they could be part of evidence, but because they have no mechanistic uh, logic for them, because they don't fill Hill's criteria, because they don't fill their sense of what's real, positivists won't accept it. And they are the quackbusters and the people who don't believe that India ever had, and they believe in the Aryan, uh, Aryan theory. They believe in the fact that um, India's knowledge and everything intelligent about it was because people had sailed from Europe and planted it there in India and in South, you know, Southern Africa and then gone back to Europe. And so it was their right to conquer India again. That's why our features look semi-European. All of these kind of white supremacy theories that have been refuted time and again. Um, I think it's interesting if you're multilingual that if you go to some Hindi literature, a lot of Bengali literature, they're already saying these things in quiet books. If you look at P.C. Ray, Prafula Chandra Ray's introduction part um, when he talks about Hindu chemistry, he talks about how the British and the German uh, positivism and their ideas of what is reality were so biased and yet had to be entertained for the sake of being able to publish your book. I mean, that's, you know, basically what he was saying. So my view toward positivism is that we need to kind of get over it and maybe start over and maybe take uh, young people who are going to own this world when we're gone have them think about knowledge in an open way, which is kind of hard because they've already been inculcated with you know, the schooling that they've gotten. Um, and see what happens if you take people through Vedic schooling where they learn how to do tarka and question everything and find the nature of evidence from their own brain's powers rather than from some you know, pre-planted ideas. I think it would be interesting to see what happens in that experiment. However, we know that positivists would never allow that because their premise is that their theorems are the baseline of truth. Very good. Well, this brings us agree? to a conclusion of, yes, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. Positivism, reductionism. I see it as a form of reductionism. Uh, and and uh, so I want to thank you, uh, uh, Paswati. Uh, I want to thank you because uh, this particular uh, episode, this particular session on Sanskrit non-translatables is extremely dear to me. It's very closely connected to the work, the late the book we are doing, and uh, we'll call on you again. I will probably uh, when the COVID settles down and thank you. When the COVID settles down, we will probably have a conference on Sanskrit non-translatables, and we'd lo love to have you uh, as an important person help us with that conference because I think you bring a lot to it. So thank you very much. And thank you to the listeners. We've had a, an amazing session with uh, Dr. Bhaswati Bhattacharya, a rare combination with tremendous credentials as a Western uh, MD, physician, Harvard, UPenn, you name it, and also very deeply rooted in the Indian culture, 
Banaras Hindu University, PhD in Ayurveda, practitioner, uh, and a no-nonsense critic uh, who's, who's uh, able to speak up and uh, speak up for the truth, uh, even if it means, uh, you know, a certain amount of controversy, but uh, that's part of the job of an intellectual Kshatriya. So thank you very much, uh, uh, everybody. Thank you.